0: collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner, uh, Volume 211 in the Collected Works, entitled The Sun Mystery and the Mystery of Death and Resurrection, Exoteric and Esoteric Christianity. Lecture 8 is entitled The Teachings of the Risen Christ, delivered at The Hague, April 13th, 1922. My subject today, The Mystery of Golgotha, the greatest mystery in human evolution on earth is one I have often spoken about in intimate anthroposophical gatherings. The mystery of Golgotha is such a broad, important, and rich subject that we must repeatedly illuminate new aspects and approach it from different perspectives. To fully appreciate the appearance of the Christ, we must keep in mind all of humankind's evolution both before and after the mystery of Golgotha, including what is still to come. We must be aware of both past and future evolutionary streams in human earthly life. It is important to realize that the thinking of the earliest earthly human beings was dreamlike and imaginative. These people possessed faculties that allowed them to interact with the beings of a higher cosmic order, if I may put it like that. You know about these beings from accounts such as those in my book titled Esoteric Science. Today, in our ordinary consciousness, we know very little about these higher beings. Our interaction with them has been cut off. This was not the case in earlier times in humankind's evolution. Of course, an encounter with one of these beings in ancient times was completely unlike a modern meeting between two people incarnated in physical bodies. It was an interaction of a totally different sort. Speaking in the original language of the earth, The beings of the higher hierarchies communicated the deepest mysteries of existence. These communications could be received only with spiritual organs. As these mysteries flowed into their hearts and minds, the earliest human beings became aware that in the heavens above, where we now see only clouds and stars, earthly existence is linked to divine worlds. Members of these divine worlds Descended in spirit to earthly human beings, and conveyed archetypal wisdom to them. These revelations contained a great deal that those earliest people would have been unable to fathom by themselves. In fact, in the earliest stages of human life on earth, there was very little that people could understand by themselves. Perception and knowledge were kindled in them by their divine teachers. Although these divine teachings contained a great variety of truths and insights, there was one thing they did not contain. The people of that time did not need to know it, but for modern human beings it has become one of our most important pieces of knowledge. Divine teachers told early humans nothing about the actual basis of birth and death, the events that frame human life on earth. In the short time we have available today, I cannot possibly mention everything these divine teachers taught the human race, and in fact you have already heard about much of it. But I would like to state emphatically that none of these teachings contained anything about birth and death, because in those ancient times and for a long time thereafter in humankind's evolution on earth, people did not need to know about birth and death. Human consciousness has changed radically. In the course of earthly evolution, the first primitive humans, though they were animal-like in appearance, compared with modern humans, functioned on a higher level of consciousness than we do, at least in some respects. So it would be a mistake to equate their consciousness with that of even the higher species of modern animals. Nonetheless, perhaps we can take some clues from the subhuman consciousness of modern animals. If you take an unbiased look at today's animals, you will realize that they take no interest in birth or death. They are fully involved in life and approach death and view birth, for that matter, with disinterest and a total lack of concern. Animals accept death passively as the transition from individual existence to existence in their group soul. Death does not make as deep an incision in their lives as it does for human beings. Despite their animal-like appearance, the first earthly humans functioned on a higher level, because their instinctive clairvoyance allowed them to interact with their divine teachers. Like modern animals, however, these early humans displayed no interest in the approach of death. It did not occur to them to pay any particular attention to death. Why should they? Their instinctive clairvoyance provided a clear view of the immortal being that descended from the spiritual world to enter the physical body at birth. Because these earliest earthly humans knew that their constitution included an immortal element, they had no interest in the transformation that took place at death. At most, they experienced it somewhat like the shedding of a snake's skin. For them, death and birth were much more a matter of course, and had much less impact on life than they do for us today. With their vivid perception of the life of the soul, these early humans were completely incapable of wondering about birth and death with the intensity that we now apply to these questions. For us today, the ability to perceive the soul has faded away, and the distinction between dreaming and sleeping has become blurred. Today we experience dream images as belonging to sleep. We feel more asleep than awake when we dream. In contrast, the dreamlike images that the first humans received were part of their incompletely developed waking life. These people recognized the content of these dream images as reality. They experienced the soul aspect of their constitution in this way. In the earliest stages of human earthly evolution this state of consciousness was especially pronounced. Later it faded away gradually. If I may put it like this, people gradually began to notice that dying had a major impact on human life, including the life of the soul. Similarly they began to pay more attention to birth. The tenor of earthly life changed. It became increasingly important to people as their experience of soul existence faded. They felt increasingly isolated from the life of the soul and spirit during the time they spent on earth. This change became increasingly pronounced as the mystery of Golgotha approached. Among the Greeks, it was already so strong that they experienced life outside the physical body as a shadowy existence and viewed impending death with a certain sense of tragedy. The teachings human beings received from their divine teachers in earliest times had not prepared them to experience being born and dying. Before the mystery of Golgotha, people were becoming increasingly aware of birth and death, but did not understand these totally unfamiliar incisions in their earthly life. Now, let us suppose that around the time of the mystery of Golgotha, those divine teachers descended to earth again. Perhaps they would have been able to communicate their ancient divine wisdom to a few specially prepared students or mortal teachers of humankind, such as the priests of the mysteries. Still none of their teachings would have dealt with birth and death. Even in the mysteries, none of the revelations of divine wisdom conveyed anything about the riddle of death. Meanwhile in their exoteric earthly life people were beginning to observe birth and death and to take an interest in them, but the gods had told them nothing about these important even fundamental aspects of their lives. Why not? This question must be explored without preconceived ideas, so we will have to set aside some of our traditional religious ideas. It is important to realize that the higher hierarchical beings, the divine teachers of the first humans, had never experienced birth and death in their worlds. Birth and death are experienced only on earth and only by human beings. The deaths of plants and animals are totally different from human death. In the divine worlds of humankind's first great teachers, birth and death do not exist. There is only transformation or metamorphosis from one form of existence, into another. Hence, these divine teachers had no inner understanding, there is no other way to describe it, of dying and being born. And these divine teachers include all those related to the beings we know as Yahweh, the Bodhisattva and the founders of all ancient religions. If you read through the Old Testament you will find confronting the mystery of death with a growing sense of tragedy. You will find people confronting the mystery of death with a growing sense of tragedy. In fact, no Old Testament teachings conveyed any inwardly satisfying information about death. If nothing had changed on earth and in the earth-related higher worlds, human beings would have faced a terrible situation as earthly evolution continued. If the mystery of Golgotha had not happened, people would have experienced birth and death as abrupt transitions in their lives rather than as simple metamorphoses and they would have been unable to experience anything of the meaning of death and birth in human earthly life. Humankind had to be taught about birth and death. To this end, the being we know as the Christ, who belonged to the same earth-related hierarchies as the great teachers of earlier times, chose a different destiny and found his way into earthly life. In compliance with the decision of the higher worlds, He incarnated into an earthly body so that a divine soul could experience earthly birth and death. You see, the event of the mystery of Golgotha is not simply a human or earthly affair. It also concerns the gods. Through what happened on Golgotha, the gods, who had never participated in the earthly mystery of death, became intimately familiar with it. The significance of the mystery of Golgotha lies in the fact that a divine being decided to experience the same destiny as an earthly human being. We, modern human beings, approach the mystery of Golgotha primarily through the Gospels, the rest of the New Testament, and our religious traditions. Modern explanations of the New Testament, however, provide very few real insights into its central mystery. Exoterically acquired knowledge represents a necessary stage in the development of modern humanity, but it is also important to acknowledge its superficiality. It tells us virtually nothing about how differently people viewed the mystery of Golgotha in the first few centuries after its occurrence. At that time, remnants of ancient instinctive clairvoyance allowed those initiated into the mystery of Golgotha to look back on it, in a way that became impossible by the 4th century A.D. From fragments of historical traditions of the earliest church fathers and Christian teachers, we know that they placed less value on written documents than on receiving the news of the Christ Jesus' transformation from teachers who still met him face to face, or later from students of students of the apostles and so on. This oral tradition persisted into the 4th century A.D., always invoking the living connections of teachers, reaching back to the Christ himself. For the most part, the historical documents have been destroyed, and only very careful reading turns up traces of how important it was considered to have a teacher who had a teacher and so on, always ending with an apostle who had seen the Lord himself face to face. Much of this oral tradition has been lost, but even more has been lost of the esoteric wisdom that persisted thanks to remnants of ancient clairvoyant insights in the first four centuries after Christ. Our exoteric traditions have lost almost all of what was once known about the risen Christ. Like the divine teachers of old, the Christ assumed a spirit body to teach selected disciples after his resurrection. But gospel accounts of the disciples' encounter with the Christ on the road to Emmaus, for example, give at best scant indication of the importance of the teachings the risen one imparted to them. The experience at Damascus that changed Saul into Paul is another example of an apostle's being instructed by the risen Christ. In those ancient times, people were still aware that the risen Christ Jesus communicated very specific mysteries to human beings. In later centuries, it became impossible to receive these teachings. Human beings had to develop soul forces that then led to individual freedom and the use of the intellect. This trend has been especially pronounced since the 15th century, but humankind has been preparing for it since the 4th century AD. We must now ask. What was the content of the teachings that the risen Christ was able to convey to His chosen disciples? He appeared to them as the divine teachers of old had done, but He spoke in the language of the gods, if I may put it like that, about something that He had experienced, but His divine companions had not. He was able to tell His disciples about the mystery of birth and death from the perspective of the gods. He told them that in the future... People's daily waking consciousness, which is extinguished during sleep, would not allow them to perceive the eternal human soul by day, nor would the soul appear in the mind's eye during sleep. He also explained something else which I will attempt to clothe in the feeble, stammering words that, our, that are all our modern language makes available to us. He told them that the human body has become increasingly dense and its death forces increasingly strong. As a consequence of this change, human beings can now cultivate their intellect and freedom, but death has become an obvious incision in their life, and their view of the eternal soul is extinguished during waking consciousness. The Christ said to His disciples, If you can simply rise to the insight that the Divine descended from super-earthly spheres to live among human beings on earth, you will be able to fill your souls with a knowledge of what happened within my being. Do you realize that something exists on earth that cannot be perceived by earthly means? Can you behold the mystery of Golgotha as a divine intervention to earthly life, as the experience of a god? If so, you will receive this wisdom. The wisdom you derive from all other earthly events is useless for understanding human death, unless you are as disinterested in death as the people of ancient times. But because you must be interested in death, your insight must be fortified with a strength greater than any earthly power of insight, with the strength to accept that events on Golgotha violated all earthly natural laws. If your capacity for belief can encompass only earthly natural laws, you will indeed be able to see death but you will never grasp its significance for human life. But if you can rise to the insight that the earth's evolution is given meaning at its midpoint by an event that cannot be understood with earthly insight, that is, by the divine event of the mystery of Golgotha, then you begin to develop the strength of a specific wisdom that is also faith, the power of Pistis Sophia, being able to say, Through faith I know and believe something that I could never know or believe by earthly means is a very potent force in your soul. This belief is much more empowering than trusting yourself to know only that which can be fathomed by earthly means. With all the science in the world, anyone whose wisdom is limited to what is comprehensible by earthly means remains a weak person. Acknowledging that a super-earthly element is active in earthly life requires much greater inner strength and activity. Contemplating the mystery of Golgotha goads us to develop such inner activity. In ever-new variations, the original disciples of the risen Christ proclaimed that a god had experienced the human destiny of birth and death, something that the gods formerly did not experience in their own realms, and thus become united with the earth's destiny. This teaching is extremely powerful, as you can discover simply by thinking about it in terms of contemporary situations. We expect much less of individuals whose thinking is derived entirely from earthly circumstances and traditional religious ideas than we do of those we believe capable of rising to the understanding that entire divine hierarchies had no knowledge of death and birth until the mystery of Golgotha, when they achieved it for the sake of humankind's salvation. It takes a certain strength to meddle in divine wisdom, so to speak, but it takes no particular strength to memorize some catechism or other, God is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-pervasive, and so on. Simply sticking all in front of an adjective, any adjective gives us a ready-made but nebulous definition of the divine. Our contemporaries lack the courage to meddle in divine wisdom, but it must be done. In particular, we must meddle in the divine wisdom that the gods acquired when one of their own experienced human birth and human death. It is extremely important that this mystery was entrusted to the first disciples. It is equally important that the Christ explained to them that human beings once had the inner strength to behold the Eternal in their own souls. We can never acquire such insights through brain knowledge, the intellectual thought-based knowledge that uses the brain as its instrument. Nor can we acquire them as the people of ancient times did, with the help of nature and by cultivating the human rhythmic system. These methods were very effective for the last instinctively clairvoyant yogis, but, despite all the amazing things Westerners attribute to modern Indian yoga practitioners, they no longer come close to true perception of the immortal human soul. For the most part their experiences are illusory. They may have transitory experiences, perhaps even of something fundamental to earthly existence but the rest is a matter of interpretation, of reading into their experience from their study of holy books. There are only two ways to acquire real, thorough, fundamental knowledge of the divine in the human soul. One is the way the first human beings did it, the other a much more spiritual way, is through intuitive knowledge that develops on the basis of imagination and inspiration. The risen Christ spoke of mysteries, that still included awareness of a higher form of substance knowledge or metabolic knowledge, which was neither the form experienced by the first earthly humans nor the degenerate form applied by hashish users and others in their attempts to acquire otherwise unattainable knowledge through drugs. In a different way, early Christians attempted to resuscitate ancient substance knowledge for a specific purpose. They enveloped, the mystery of Golgotha in the cultic or mantric formulas of the gospel, offering, transubstantiation and communion. Let me read that again. They enveloped the mystery of Golgotha in the cultic or mantric formulas of the gospel, offering, transubstantiation and communion, and they gave communicants bread and wine, not drugs, but communion wafers and wine. After the fourth section of the Mass, Communion, the true Communion of the faithful was supposed to take place. The intent of the Mass was to suggest to communicants that it was time to rediscover the knowledge once achieved through ancient instinctive metabolic perception. For us today, it is very difficult to gain any idea of what this ancient metabolic knowledge was like. Today we no longer have a clue that birds, not to mention camels who live entirely in their metabolism, know more than human beings, although in a dull and dreamlike way, not intellectually, abstractly or rationally. Today the metabolic perception of the first human beings survives only in degenerate forms, such as drug use. According to early Christian teachings, however, The sacrament of communion is intended to reawaken the urge to acquire knowledge of the eternal aspect of the human soul. During earthly life, the thinking portion of the soul disappears after sculpting the structures of the nervous system and is no longer present as such. In the rhythmic system, it is only half-present. Consequently, if we were to rely on these two systems... To explore our own souls, we would discover at most some clues leading to further conclusions. The actual immortal part of the human soul is concealed only in the metabolic system, which we consider the most materialistic aspect of our earthly life. Outwardly, it is indeed the most material, but just because it is so material, the spirit remains separated from it. Our other material systems, the brain and the rhythmic system, soak up or absorb spirit, so it is no longer present as such. In the most crudely material system, however, spirit is still present. If we are capable of perceiving, seeing, observing with this crudely material aspect, we can perceive the eternal soul. The first earthly human beings had this ability, and it still occurs occasionally today, although only in undesirable pathological conditions. For example, very few people know the secret behind the style of Nietzsche's title Zarathustra. Nietzsche ingested certain toxic substances that are responsible for the unique rhythm and style of his title Zarathustra. In other words, a certain attribute of matter was thinking in Nietzsche. This is a pathological situation, of course even if the results are magnificent in some respects. If we want to understand Nietzsche's spirituality, we cannot have illusions about it, just as we cannot have any illusions about the opposite path, intuition and so on. We must be aware of the effects of Nietzsche's drug use, although we must not emulate him in that respect. In the human organism these drugs assume an independent etheric existence. They spread systematically through a person's way of thinking, where they produced results such as those we find in Nietzsche's Zarathustra. In contrast, intuitions make it possible to perceive soul and spirit as such, separate from matter. In the descriptions of intuition entitled How to Know Higher Worlds and "Title Esoteric Science, matter is no longer involved at all. Substance-based and substance-free perception are polar opposites. The Risen Christ conveyed this knowledge to His initiated disciples at a time when people were unable to discover it for themselves. It survived in some form for four centuries, but then ossified in the Roman Catholic Church, which retained the sacrifice of the Mass, but no longer knew how to interpret it. The meaning of the sacrifice of the Mass, which is intended as an extension of the Lord's Supper as depicted in the Bible, lies entirely in its interpretation. The Mass is a wonderful emulation of the four stages of mystery initiation, and its adoption can be traced back to the teachings imparted by the Risen One, to the disciples who were capable of grasping their higher esoteric meaning. Traditions that survived into the early Middle Ages preserved only a rather juvenile type of instruction in the mystery of Golgotha. The faculty that developed at that time temporarily shrouded or concealed true knowledge of the mystery of Golgotha. Before rediscovering this knowledge, human beings first needed to solidify their relationship to death and everything related to it. Writings preserved in some modern esoteric societies contain formulas reminiscent of the Christ's teachings to his initiated disciples, but the members of these societies Freemasons, and so on, have no idea of the living content and meaning of these dead letters. But now that humankind's evolution has passed through a period of darkness with respect to the mystery of Golgotha, a time is coming when human beings will again long to understand the mystery of Golgotha on a deeper level. This understanding will be achieved only through anthroposophy, through the appearance of a new knowledge that works in purely spiritual ways. Through it, we will again achieve a fully human understanding of the mystery of Golgotha. We will again learn to understand that the teachings most important for humankind were proclaimed by the risen Christ, not by the Christ who lived in a physical body before the mystery of Golgotha. We will gain new understanding of these words of the initiate Paul, If the Christ did not rise from the dead, your faith is in vain. 1 Corinthians 15.14 after his experience at damascus paul recognized the crucial importance of the understanding the risen christ uh, and uniting his power with human beings so that we can truly say not i but the christ in me <laughs> in contrast the emergence of a theology that no longer aspires to know much of anything about the risen christ was all too typical of the 19th century it is a significant symptom of the times that nietzsche's friend Overbeck, a professor of theology in Basel, Switzerland, wrote a book in which he presents proof that modern theology is no longer Christian. In his opinion, although Christianity might still exist in some form, the theology promulgated by Christian theologists was no longer Christian. This is approximately the viewpoint of the Christian theologist Overbeck, a view he proves quite brilliantly in his book. At this point in humankind's understanding of the mystery of Golgotha, the people who have the least to say about it are those officially employed by their churches to present it to their contemporaries. As a result, people are experiencing an inner longing or need to know about the Christ. As I expressed in a recent series of lectures, anthroposophy today is meant to serve humankind in a variety of ways, and one of its important functions is religious This does not mean that we are to establish a new religion in an event never to be outdone, an event that gave meaning and purpose to the earth. A God has endured the human fate of birth and death. Since the coming of the Christ, it is obvious to anyone who understands Christianity's source that founding new religions is no longer possible. If we believe that new religions can still be established, we misunderstand Christianity. But, as humankind progresses in the quest for supersensible knowledge, our understanding of the mystery of Golgotha and of the being of the Christ will deepen. Anthroposophy's contribution to this understanding may be unique at this point in time. Where else is anyone talking about humankind's relationship to the divine teachers of ancient times, who spoke of everything except the birth and death that they had never experienced? Where else is anyone talking about the teacher who appeared to his initiated disciples in the same way as the divine teachers of old, yet was able to convey God's experience of the human fate of birth and death? As human beings increasingly faced the need to take an interest in death, this new divine communication was intended to give them the strength to realize that death cannot touch the soul. The purpose of the mystery of Golgotha was to make this realization possible. Paul knew that if the Christ had not risen from the dead, human souls would have become imprisoned in the fate of the body and its earthly components. If the Christ had not risen from the dead, he would not have aligned himself with earthly forces, and the human soul would have united so completely with the body during life between birth and death that it would also have remained connected with all the body's molecules that have returned to the earth through cremation or decomposition after death. By the end of the earth's evolution, human souls would have gone the way of matter. But because the Christ when through the mystery of Golgotha, he wrests human souls from this fate, the earth will go its own way in the cosmos. But just as an individual human soul is able to leave the body and yet survive, so too the sum total of human souls will be able to leave the earth and move on to a new existence in the cosmos. This is how the Christ is intimately connected to earthly existence. We can understand this mysterious connection only by approaching it as we have done today. Perhaps it will occur to some of you to wonder, what about those who cannot believe in the Christ? Let me conclude with a few reassuring words. The Christ died for all including those who cannot yet unite with him. The mystery of Golgotha is an objective, accomplished fact that is not affected by what people know or do not know about it. Nonetheless, knowing about it strengthens the inner forces of the human soul. We must apply all means available to us, our human cognition, feeling, and willing, to ensure that as the earth's evolution continues, human beings will also know subjectively through direct experience, of the Christ's presence within them. The end of Lecture 8.